Chapter Five of Bird's Eye Views of Far Lands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eva Easton. Bird's Eye Views of Far Lands by James T. Nichols. Chapter Five. A GREAT UNKNOWN LAND, MANCHURIA Of all the lands in Eastern Asia, perhaps the least is known about Manchuria of any of them. And yet one of the finest sleeping cars I ever traveled in was on the South Manchurian Railway. I had a large roomy compartment to myself. In it was a comfortable bed or berth, a folding washstand and writing desk, electric fan, and various other conveniences. While this was an Eastern model sleeper, an American Pullman was also attached to the train for those who preferred it. For two hundred and seventy years, the Manchurians furnished the rulers for the whole Chinese Empire. The Empress Dowager was a Manchu. Born in a humble home, at the age of sixteen, she became a concubine of the emperor. She was so diligent in study and self-improvement that she was elevated to the position of first concubine, and later became the mother of the emperor's son, and was raised to the position of wife. When her son was but three years of age, the emperor died, and she swept aside all aspirants to the throne, placed her son upon it with herself as regent until he was of age. For forty-seven years, in a country where women had scarcely any power, this marvelous woman ruled one-fourth of the human race. Manchuria is a little larger than the combined area of Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska, Kansas, and Missouri. It is located at the northeast of China, and, until recently, formed a part of the Chinese Empire. While nearly all kinds of grain and vegetables are grown, the one great staple crop of Manchuria is the soybean. Think of growing two million tons of these beans per year. Before the war, Manchurian beans were shipped all over the world. In a Manchurian city, I asked a businessman to tell me the chief sites of the city. And he said, We have nothing here but bean mills. It's beans, beans, beans. In the hills and mountains, nearly all kinds of wild beasts are found. The Manchurian tiger is perhaps most dreaded of all. Perhaps the best known place in Manchuria is Port Arthur. Years ago the Chinese had what they believed to be an impregnable fortress in Port Arthur, but the wily Japanese battered it down in twenty-four hours. Later on the Russians got it and worked seven years on the fortifications and gun emplacements, and really felt that they had it secure. Although the forts were built on the Belgian plan, and Port Arthur was as secure as Antwerp, Yet the unconquerable Japanese took it with a loss of only a thousand or fifteen hundred men. 
Nature has been kind to Port Arthur by throwing up the mountains of the chair, the table, and the lion's mane. But the best defense that nature provides has to give way before the genius of the human brain. Only a little more than four miles from Port Arthur is the city of Dalny, also called Dairen. It is a beautiful little city of fifty or sixty thousand people, with a good streetcar system and many modern buildings. On landing I went to the Yamato Hotel and found comfortable quarters at a reasonable price. The South Manchurian Railway operates a string of these Yamato hotels. This is a Japanese railway and operates with a steamship line crossing the Yellow Sea and the Great Trans-Siberian Railroad, or rather did so before the World War. In Dalny I found a good YMCA building with an American secretary. This association has good buildings in nearly every large oriental city, especially if it is near the coast. One can hardly realize the debt of gratitude civilization owes to this organization. These buildings are oases on the great oriental desert where the American traveler can find rest and a quiet home. At the close of the war between Russia and Japan by the Treaty of Portsmouth, Russia agreed to transfer to Japan without compensation and with the consent of the Chinese government the South Manchurian Railway between Port Arthur and Chongchun, a distance of 436 miles, quote, together with all rights, privileges, and properties appertaining thereto in that region, as well as all coal mines in said region, belonging to or worked for the benefit of the railway. End quote. The Chinese government also agreed not to construct any parallel lines that would injure the interests of this railway, so the Japanese have an iron hold upon the whole proposition. To travel the full extent of this railway in the late fall is an interesting experience. The soil is of a reddish color, and the fall plowing was already done. The methods of farming used in China largely prevail here. I saw many of them taking their beans, grain, and other produce to market. Along the dusty highway, the oxen slowly trudged, drawing great wooden wheeled carts. On one occasion, the engine had frightened the oxen, and they had their heads up and tails flying as the loaded cart bumped along over the field, with the driver doing all he could to get them back into the highway. Women and children were often sitting on the ground in the villages, seemingly without any work whatever to do. The Manchurian people are larger physically than the Chinese, and are better looking. But someone has said of the Manchu, He knows not, neither does he learn. They say that he only bathes once a year, and does not care who owns the ground as long as he can till it, and that it does not bother him in the least to see his wife and daughter sit on the stone fence for hours, picking the lice from each other's head. 
the women folks are largely slaves of fashion and still persist in trying to stunt the growth of their feet even while they do this they often work in the harvest field wash their clothing along the streams clean out the donkey stable and do all kinds of outdoor work while baking bread spanking their children and doing other household duties they are not slow in looking after and waiting upon their lordly husbands some years ago a plague of the most deadly description swept over northern manchuria it was so terrible and fatal that when one was stricken there was but little hope for recovery it was so contagious that when one member of a family took it generally the entire family perished as simply a whiff of the breath of one stricken was sufficient to give it to another the government made every effort to cope with the situation but the difficulties were tremendous and the scourge spread like a prairie fire more than forty two thousand took it and it is said that not a single one recovered the ground was frozen so hard that it was impossible to dig graves for the dead and preparation was made for cremating bodies this created consternation among the manchus every possible subterfuge was resorted to to conceal cases of the plague and bodies were often hidden in the snow all winter long dr jackson a brilliant young physician of the irish presbyterian mission in manchuria was stricken and died as did dr mesny a splendid french physician early the next spring the plague ceased as suddenly as it broke out and has never appeared again in any country however many believe the influenza is a modification of this plague Mukdan, the manchurian capital city has been called the asiatic armageddon it is a walled city and contains a couple of hundred thousand people during the russian japanese war a portion of it is said to have been eight different times in the hands of the russians and japanese the streets are unpaved dirt and filth abounds there are many dirty restaurants the manchus are great feeders they eat between meals soup and vegetables and most everything else the temperature of mukhtan is about the same as st paul minnesota the imperial tombs are not far from mukhtan the road to these tombs is paved with stones this is called the road of the spirit on each side are six great life-size stone animals it is thought that these signify the emperor's rule over certain countries visiting the great ming tombs near nanking china one sees many of these large stone animals not far from mukdan one can get a look at the great wall of china the building of which is said to be the greatest undertaking of all history it was fifteen hundred miles long fifty feet thick at the bottom and from twenty-five to forty feet high it was built over mountains across valleys and rivers and down into the sea 
There were towers about every three hundred yards, and although built more than two thousand years ago, much of it is in good repair to this day. It took a million men ten years to do the job of building it. The Chinese and Manchus were great wall-builders. Their cities were always walled. Mukhtan stands on a plain, but its walls are forty feet high and thirty feet thick at the top. At each corner, and over each of the eight gateways, there used to be a tower, and then the great drum-tower and bell-tower were in the midst of the city. Nearly every city had its big drum-tower, upon which drums were beaten if the city was in danger or an enemy near. Here in Mukhtan nearly all these towers have been taken down, but large portions of the old city walls remain. There are said to be very many more men than women in the city today. Until 1905, it is said, the city never had a policeman. The gates were closed at dark, and the city became silent as the streets were not lighted. There is not enough light in the streets yet at night to hardly be noticed. The old patriarchal family system often prevails. Sometimes a family will be composed of a hundred people, several generations. The following from Dugald Christie will give a glimpse of some of the strange customs of these people. He says, quote, there was in Mukhtan a wealthy family who had land in the country adjoining that of some poor people. A dispute arose over boundaries, and they went to law. Having money to back him, the rich man won the case. The next day a son of the poor man committed suicide at the rich man's door, and he had to compensate the parents heavily. When that was settled, another son did the same, calling on all to witness that he did this because of the injustice his parents had suffered at the hands of this man. This time a much heavier indemnity was demanded, and after months of haggling it was paid. Then a third son killed himself in like manner, and the payment of the still further increased blood money reduced the once wealthy man to a state poorer than his rival. Again the lawsuit was heard, and this time the country family won the case. Another Manchurian city of note is Harbin. This is located in the great agricultural district of the country. Twenty-five or thirty years ago this was open prairie, but one night two Russians pitched their tent on the spot that is now the center of the city. Like Jonah's gourd, the city almost grew up in a night. For years it was about the worst city to be found, there being at least one murder committed almost every day. After changing trains at midnight and rambling around a few hours, I would say that it is not filled with saints yet. During the Russian-Japanese War, it was one of the great gateways, more than a million soldiers passing through it. From Harbin West, one passes through the Quagon Mountains. This is said to be the coldest place of like latitude on the globe. Here grows in abundance the Edelweiss, 
which is so rare and so prized in Switzerland. Mr. Taft, in Strange Siberia, calls attention to the fact that one of the Manchurian towns here is named for Genghis Khan, who was one of the great military geniuses of the old days. He united the vast hordes of warring tribes of Siberia into one vast army, and swept over this whole country like a mighty conqueror. Our American soldiers who were sent to this section of the Far East sure got a glimpse of Manchuria that they will never forget. Before the World War many of the Chinese and Manchus crossed the line and worked in the Russian gold mines and grew rich, but they had a time getting their gold out of Russia without being discovered but their cuteness is proverbial. Even Chinamen die, and they, as well as the Manchus, must sleep their long sleep in their native land. In a certain Russian city it is said that these Chinese were paying great attention to the dead bodies of their kindred in preparing them for the journey back home. The Russians became suspicious, and peeping through a keyhole at the embalming processes, these policemen discovered that gold dust was blown from a tube into the dead man's skull. This let the cat out of the bag, for these Chinese were making the bodies of the dead the carriers of gold, for as soon as the bodies reached home, the gold was extracted. End of chapter 5 Recording by Eva Easton, Slotesburg, New York, July 2011